Corinthians, the book, and chapter 16 today. It has been a year since we started this book, so uh, yeah, let's get on to 2 Corinthians, right? <laughs> um, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into Paul's conclusion, his final greetings in uh, 1 Corinthians. Lord Jesus, I thank you for today, and I just praise you for what uh, you've been teaching us, teaching me uh, through uh, the study of 1 Corinthians, and Lord, the things that we've learned, uh, Lord, that you have called us to. And so, Lord, I pray today that that, um, that attitude of, of learning about you and the, and the desire and the passion for being more like Christ continues on. And, uh, and Lord, I just thank you for it. I praise you for each one that we have the privilege of serving with and Lord, serving you with them. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll pick it up in verse 15. Um, remembering before I start reading last week about the five, uh, the fivefold command that he gives, he describes, um, you know, being on your guard, uh, being firm in the faith, being courageous, be strong, and demonstrating love toward everyone. We pick it up in verse 15. He says, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus Fortunatus and a and a, a, a chick a chick say that again, Achaicus. Thank you, um, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All of the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be accursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so Achaia was the, was the Roman province extending over central and southern, Gre southern Greece, of which Corinth uh, is the capital. Um, and now if you remember on Paul's missionary journey, when he leaves Macedonia, he leaves Berea, and he sails, um, and Luke has just been with him probably a few months and he sails down and around, and he lands at Athens in Greece. And what does he find there? Remember what the Athenian people were? They, they had, yeah, they had all kinds of gods, and they were fascinated by all kinds of religions. And so they have this monument set up to the unknown god. And so um, at the end of his visit there... Um, We'll read in just a minute in Acts 17. Um, we'll read about how, how he was, when he got there, um, the, the, the question that, that arose in my head was, is Stephanus 
described in Paul's visit. And he's not named specifically, but he is, he is included in a part of a group. And so it, if, we, if we think back to the beginning of Corinthians, um, the first chapter, Paul says, I baptized Stephanus and his house, household, and there was a couple of others, but other than that, he says, I don't know how... Uh, I don't know how many I baptized. I really didn't baptize any. The question in my mind is, why did, bapti- why did Paul baptize Stephanus? And so that put me on a quest to, to figure this out. You know, why did Paul baptize him and his household and no one else? And so if we go back to Acts chapter 17, and we just look a little bit at the, the journey that he was on, understanding that just before... Uh, he gets on the ship, if we, if we start um, with verse 14, and we read through verse 21 just to start out. He says, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So we don't know exactly who those people are, but we do know that Luke is with him uh, because Luke joined them when they left Troas to, to go to Macedonia. And throughout Macedonia, he didn't stay very long at each one of those cities. And so verse 16, when Paul was, was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well is in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. Uh, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Aragapas. Aeropagus, excuse me, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so um, Paul then, of course, gets up and and he explains about the gospel of Jesus Christ, And the end result, if we move down to starting in verse 29, he says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When he had heard about when they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, "We want to hear you again on this subject." At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed, and among them were Dionysus, a member of the Aragapus, Arop, excuse me, I'm sorry, Aropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. 
So somewhere in between here, um, in between these two points, Stephanus and his household were saved. And according to 1 Corinthians 16, Stephanus was the first. And so if we think about the journey that Paul takes, we know that Paul and Luke are on a journey, and we don't know if there are how many others there are. It's not, that information is not given to us. But what I do understand is that Luke is a new believer. And so why did Paul baptize Stephanus? And his household, the conclusion that I come to is because there was no one else there qualified to do it. And that's, that's the reason why Paul did that. And so we're going to learn in a little bit um, the evidence of Stephanus and his household that surpassed many of the others that were there, um, the, the faithfulness to him. So continuing in 1 Corinthians 16, In verse 15, the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. So that right there, um, the household of Stephanus were among those who assumed responsibility of the general welfare of the church. So when Paul was observing Stephanus and his household, there was, there was something in him that evidence God's appointing and anointing on Stephanus and his commission to his purpose uh, in the church at Corinth. So if we turn back to 1 Corinthians 1, I want to point out the, uh, the usage of some specific, a specific word here. And before I read this, why did Paul write this letter? What was, what was the purpose in writing this letter in the first place? Right, there, was, there were some problems, there were some struggles. So if we start in verse 10 of 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. And first of all, I want to, I want to unpack a little bit what it means to be perfectly united. Um, in, in many churches today, it's easy to describe unity is, as let's all just get along. Okay, let's just accept each other's uh, shortcomings and failures. And, and we should do that. We should bear each other's burdens. But what Paul is describing as perfect unity is, okay, we have a little struggle. We have, a, we have an issue, something going on. Can we together go into God's word and say God's word is true and whatever it says that's what we're going to agree to obey. And so that's what he's describing here. And so in mind and in thought, he says, my brothers and sisters, in verse 11, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says this, says I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. So the, the last one that he describes following Christ 
is the most important one. But what he's doing is he's putting men in front of him who have been a part of their fellowship. And at the end of 1 Corinthians, he's saying, all these guys are absent from you today. Stephanus and his household, who are following the same Christ and leading the same Christ, have been put in place by God in your church to lead you. So at the beginning, these people are saying, I follow this person, I follow that person, I follow that person. So what we do in our churches today is, I follow Dr. David Jeremiah. I follow, and, and we elevate another human being who teaches and preaches from the television set or from the radio who has no idea what's going on in my life today. And so we take that and we go, okay, I want to I follow this person because they're not here directly telling me how to live according to God's word. And, the, and Paul is going, Stephanus is in your church with you every day, and he is appointed by God to lead the church that you are in right now. And so in 1 Corinthians 16, he's not saying follow Stephanus. He's saying submit to him and join him in the labor for the gospel. So he doesn't take and elevate Stephanus as a, as a, uh, a king or a leader or a dictator or anything like that. He's not, he's not putting that on him. But what he is saying is men like this who are studying God's word and putting the church, the body of believers, and Christ ahead of everything else, he's saying imitate their life. Not elevate them, you know, because a lot of times we'll read where he says, that these men deserve recognition, that's not the kind of recognition he's talking about. He's not talking about a recognition of putting them on a pedestal, but he is talking about a recognition of, wow, that person is following Christ. I want to watch what they do, and then I want to examine the Scripture, and if they're doing what the Scripture tells me to do, I want to live like that. That's how I want God to change my life and draw me into living like Christ. And so it's not that, that Peter, uh, Cephas, or Paul, or Apollos are, are doing anything less than Stephanus and his household, but it is that God put those Stephanus and his household in position specifically to lead the church at Corinth. And so um, this is an important aspect as Paul concludes this letter. Um, as you see in Paul's letters many times, he, he goes through cities and he appoints elders. But in the instance of the household of Stephanus, Stephanus and his household voluntarily took on the responsibility. And Paul later writes, uh, like in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 3.1, he said, Whoever desires to be an overseer desires a noble, noble task. And Paul recognizes their position as ordained by God and urges other people to submit to them. And so, uh, the word follow in chapter 1 uh, is transitioned to the word submit in chapter 16. It's, it's important to recognize the character uh, in Stephanus and his household. And so, there's a little side note along with this in, in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, when he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and everyone who joins in the work and labors in it. A lot of times we'll read about a household being saved um, in, in the New Testament. There's a couple instances where it's written about an entire household gets saved and then gets baptized. 
And it's easy to take today's culture and apply that to the household and say, well, that includes all of the children and the infants and, and everybody. You're shaking your head no. Why is that? Okay, so it's only if they believe. And this passage clarifies that. Because they've devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. And I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people. So can you describe an infant or a child who is passionate about serving the Lord's people? That's a difficult picture to, to see. But, and <laughs> I see the expression, some are going, no way, not my kids. Uh, and others are going, well, it's possible. It is, and I don't say that it's impossible, but it's not, it is not natural without the influence of a, of a godly person in their life leading them and showing them and demonstrating it to them. So on their own, is it natural for a child um, to hear the gospel message and just immediately step into uh, Christian service? It, is it possible? Yes, but it's not a, a natural uh, occurrence that takes place. And so Paul here, as he's describing this, um, he's describing the household of Stephanus as the ones who are mature, have heard the gospel, understand the gospel, and have stepped into the roles um, that God is calling them to. And they've made those choices and decisions in their own life, in their personal uh, relationship with Christ. Right. I mean, I went to all the classes. I was born again. I ran the church. <laughs> I mean, I've been with him for years. Right. And so you're describing very similarly what happened in my life. And I wasn't raised in that particular church, but I was raised in the Bible church where, I, I mean, I had memorized passages of Scripture and, and somebody asked me at, at one point, do you want to be saved and do you want to be baptized? And I said, sure, I'm, yeah. And so I sat down with the pastor and they described it and I said, yeah, I, I agree with everything that you've said, not knowing the kind of temptation that a, that a teenager faces, you know, at, at seven years old, you know. Um, and so, of course, when I grew up and became a teenager, I'm like, wow, okay, the world has a lot to offer and, you know, got involved in every kind of sin possible. And so it wasn't until later in life, you know, you say 30 years later is probably about 30 years, roughly 30 years later for me that I started reading the Bible and going, I'm not doing this. And so for me, my, my personal conviction was I didn't get saved until, um, until much later in life because, not because I didn't know it and understand it in my mind, but I didn't live like I was convinced that it was true. Yeah, yeah, that, and I agree. I pray that. Right. Right, right. I pray the same thing for my grandkids. You know that they that they submit and give their life to Christ at a young age, and um, and so my part in that today is making sure they have all the information, uh, making sure that they are instructed, uh, are helping as much as possible to um, to share about Jesus in their life today. Um, and so the simplest way we were talking about before Sunday school, the simplest way is, uh, you know, I, I, I slept out in a tent with one of my grandsons uh, uh, back in, in the middle of the summer. 
and just standing there and saying, can you point out the North Star? You know, and, and just talking with them a little bit about creation. And, and there, there have been times where we've just been out in the backyard doing stuff, playing, whatever. And we stop and take a break because I'm old and just laying on my back looking up at the sky and I watch an airplane go overhead. How do you think that airplane stays up there? You know, and just start giving instruction about science, about the atmosphere and things like that and about how God created the earth and the amazement of the things that man is able to do because God already put things in place for us to be able to do those things. You know, so there's, there's so much opportunity that I think um, I know for myself, I've missed over the years um, to, to, to share and to demonstrate Christ to uh, my children. But uh, with the case of Stephanus, you know, and he's, he's talking about his household, he's describing people who are mature, who are able to understand, who have made decisions uh, to follow Jesus Christ. And then he describes also, in verse 17, I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus uh, and help me with this one again, Achaicus. I don't know why I struggle with that name so hard. Achaicus arrived. He says, because they supplied what was lacking from you. Um, Achaicus and Fortunatus were instrumental, I believe, and I'm convinced according to this passage that they were instrumental in writing and delivering uh, the message to Paul inquiring about how to handle the divisions and the questions that are, had come up in Corinth. And so despite the fact of the news, it, as we read on, um, they refreshed my spirit, verse 18, they refreshed my spirit and yours also. And such men deserve recognition that despite the fact of the news about the Corinthian believers, these men were able to refresh and encourage Paul uh, and he says that such men deserve recognition. And again, like I said, not the kind of recognition that elevates a person, but the recognition that spurs people to imitate their labor. So if we look at First Thessalonians 3, um, we're going to read the whole chapter. It's not a very long chapter. Paul is giving encouragement and accolades to the Thessalonian people as well um, for their service. The first verse, first and second verse are greetings. He says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in second Thessalonians. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Thank you. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. He says, we always thank God. First, First Thessalonians 1. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Thank you for helping me. First Thessalonians 1. There's only 10 verses in the chapter. So it's a short chapter. <laughs> sorry about that. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm confusing myself. It's, it's easy for me to do. So um, anyway, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. He says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. 
we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So we know from the letter to the Thessalonians that Paul was there for how long? Three weeks. He mentions that later. Um, that is a pretty short period of time to spread the gospel message through an entire city and to see faithfulness immediately happen without a whole lot of demonstration. And so from Thessalonica in, Mas in Macedonia, he travels to uh, Berea, and from Berea he leaves and comes down to Athens. And so when he arrives at Athens, the Thessalonians are, he's saying here, they're the example of how you should live. And so back in Corinth, you know, in Corinthians, he's describing, he describes again, people like Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achicus, these are the people that you should imitate. And then in, in Thessalonica, he's saying the whole city has just overwhelmed him with their immediate obedience and their immediate uh, desire to serve one another and to, to send gifts on to Paul. And so there's, there's examples that continue to pay, to pay forward um, to the next group of people. So the Philippians as well, Philippians 2.25. We just look there for a moment. We'll read 25 through 30. He says, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send to, uh, eager to send him so that when you see him again you may be glad and I ha may have less anxiety so then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ he risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me 
And so when we read passages like that and we read about people who Paul had ministered to and had gotten saved and joined Paul in the work that he was doing, you see Paul risking his life as he travels around spreading the gospel and you see the people coming after him doing the same things. So you see people like Sosthenes where at the beginning of 1 Corinthians who was beaten on the steps in front of the proconsul um, in Corinth, risking their lives for the gospel message. How many of us can say that we have truly put ourselves or allowed God to move us into a position where our lives were threatened for the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, we live in a culture today where that just, that kind of thing doesn't happen. And, I, and I, I used to say things like this, and I believe that it's true, and I still, you know, tell people this from time to time, is <clears throat> do you want to, I ask the question, do you want to walk closer with the Lord? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Are you prepared for trials? Are you prepared for serious opposition in your life? Because Satan don't bother people who are not a threat. But once a person says, I'm going to follow the Lord and I'm going to give, them, give him everything, all of a sudden, all of this, have you, have you experienced that? <laughs> all of a sudden, opposition comes. So when James, it helps you understand a little bit, when James writes, count it joy when you face trials of many kinds because they produce maturity. They, they, they generate patience in a person's life. They help you to understand and to respond in ways that Jesus response and and I, i'll be the first to say with me and with some it doesn't happen overnight i have to fail at it time and time again before i finally get it you know oh this is not the way jesus wants me to respond before you move into uh an attitude or or a a, a teaching or a, you know a, a way of following and, and responding like christ would yes Well, and I think the answer is in what you just said. You said, since now we have freedom of religion. Freedom of, of religion was given when God said, you may eat of any tree in the garden. Do not eat of this tree. Yep. Yeah. I think the yeah there are there are places around the world I think I think here in the because right and I, and I would agree with that and I would say that the reason why it's not is because there are not people living for Christ today as they were in the early church and so when I ask that question. I put myself in the middle of that question and say, have I risked my life? The answer is no. I would also ask them in the next sentence, I would ask myself the same question. Have I given the gospel message about Jesus Christ like they did? Have I gone into the White House and said, listen here, Mr. President, you need to repent. Like Stephen did when he walked into the council, you know, you, you how many people do we know have walked into Congress and said, look, our nation needs to repent and get on their face before God and, 
and start listening to what God's Word has to say. What's that? Right, right. And they face all kinds of opposition. And so have I lived and done that? No, I haven't. I, I, I can't even say that I have, you know, there's times when I, when I read things about the Sweetcorn Festival where they say, you know, um, that they're going to do this and that. And I say, Ugh, no, not in our community. Let's not elevate alcohol and, and let's not elevate uh, gambling. Everywhere I look, there's, there's, there's places to gamble all around town now that weren't there 10 years ago. You know, um, and you can say, well, the, it's government licensing, it's income, it's this, it's that. And, and, and I say, no, historically, everywhere where this has taken place, there are more and more people in poverty as a result because they're, they're going, they're chasing something that's futile, that is proven to not ever bring uh, satisfaction or joy. And, and it's a constant um, consuming of your time and your resources to where the families just disintegrates uh, before our eyes in those in those communities. So um, anyway, back in First Corinthians sixteen, he uh, in verse nineteen he describes the churches in the province of Asia. Uh, he says they send your their greetings of uh, Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. So if we go back to Romans chapter 16 for a moment. In verse 3, 3 and 4, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. So Paul is, is recognizing Priscilla and Aquila, who he worked with when he first arrived. You know, he, he got a job and he was working with them. And Priscilla and Aquila had been run out of Rome because they were Jews and they were followers of Christ. And so they were, they were forced out of Rome, ended up in Corinth, and connected with Paul, and Paul He's like, wow, more believers. And they join him and they follow him. He, they're in Ephesus with him at this point as he's riding back to Corinth. And so they're familiar with who they are. And they're known because they're constantly giving and giving and giving and, and put it, allowing God to put them in positions to share the gospel at, at the possibility that it could mean their lives. Yes. They were, uh, and I'm not sure how they heard the message, but I do know that they're from Rome. Um, you know that they were that they were run out of there, so it's possible and maybe even likely that they they could have heard it there from some of the Roman guards and and people that had traveled there. Um, but I don't, I'm not sure. I don't say that the Bible doesn't say that, but I don't know how they heard the gospel. But we do know that they're followers of Christ. They know and understand the message about Christ. And so when Paul gets connected with them, uh, they, are, they are following him. So uh, back in 1 Corinthians 16, he 
he describes the church that meets at their house in verse, uh, verse 20. He says, all the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, in Acts 19.7, Paul mentions 12 men who had become Paul's disciples in Ephesus. Uh, and the holy kiss was a public display of mutual respect among followers of Christ. Now, all of you know me, I usually don't turn around, turn down affection, you know, too much. But uh, this is not something that is culturally accepted in, you know, in our country. Um, but what he's describing there would be something that would be similar to if, if somebody come up and give me a hug at church. You know, and a, how you doing? It's good to see you, you know, that kind of thing. So the holy kiss was a, was a natural, it's not a command that's given to every culture and every nation. But it is something that was culturally accepted, and it was probably the highest form of physical affection, brother to brother, uh, that was given. It was common among the churches. Um, yeah, I mean, and the disciples, uh, oftentimes when they were walking with Jesus, they would greet each other that way. And so anyway, um, these, these 12 men are not named specifically, uh, in Acts 17, but it does say that there were 12 men that became Paul's disciples, or I'm sorry, in Acts 19. Uh, they were 12 men that became Paul's disciples, and they went with him to Ephesus. And so in verse 21, uh, Paul signs this letter um, as he does a number of his letters. Uh, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Um, we don't have to go to all of them, but Galatians 6, 11, uh, he writes very similarly, also in Colossians 4, verse 18, and uh, Philemon, verse 19, and then again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17. Um, now, if we look at Romans 16, 22, this was common up until this point where uh, someone else is writing for Paul, and he just signs the end of it. Uh, Romans 16, 22. He says, I, Tertius, ter, ter, ter who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Um, in this case, somebody else was dictating the letter for Paul. Uh, and of course, Paul, um, toward the end of the end of the chapter, verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, acknowledging you know, that this is Paul, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Paul puts his, his signature at the end of each gospel, whether he physically wrote it himself or somebody else dictated it, and uh, he acknowledges that it, he was the writer. So in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Um, He's describing that as these trials and as these divisions 
come into play and Paul has given the instructions and the gospel message throughout this whole letter. He's describing that anyone who does not come to love the Lord Jesus Christ in response to the preaching, they, they will experience God's wrath. And so when you look at Stephanus and his household and the people that are involved in leading the church, Paul's instruction is directly to them and, he's, and this same instruction follows through in every letter that is given to instruction to every church. So if there's not a display of love for Jesus Christ and obedience to his word, he's saying make sure they know and understand that, that God's wrath is coming so that they don't leave uninformed about what is going to happen if they make the choice not to follow Christ. And so... The, the conclusion, when he says in the last verse, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus, he gives his usual blessing in, in the verse before, the grace of the Lord be with you. But then he wants them to know that even though he has been very severe with them, that he loves them as believers in Christ. And he even loves those who choose not to follow Christ, <clears throat> but they need to know and understand that they're not following Christ. So if we go to John 3, just for a moment. This will be the last passage for this morning. Or actually, next to the last. I'm gonna get, I want to give you one more. Um, John 3, verses, uh, verse 36. Paul, or, uh, John writes, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And so he's, what he's describing is, is that God's wrath is on us from the beginning, uh, because earlier in this same chapter, it says that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the world, because they were already condemned, but that the world through him uh, might have eternal life. And so John is writing at the end, God's wrath remains on them if they, if they refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So real quickly, I'll read one more passage and we'll be done. Turn to Luke 22. And I'll be interested, I may not think about it then when I get there, but from heaven I'll be interested to see uh, how, how involved Luke was with all of Paul's travels. You know, Paul doesn't really say a whole lot about him, but we know that he was with him a lot. Spent a lot of time from, uh, I think it's Acts, Acts 15, when he leaves Troas, that Luke leaves with him, and he goes with him at that point. How much time Luke actually is completely with Paul. Uh, but in Luke 22, verses 24 through 28, um, this is at the Last Supper. It says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And Jesus says to them, this, this is a reminder of how Paul is dis, um, regarding acknowledgement and, and things like that. Uh, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and all those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, 
The greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. And so he's describing here, Jesus is saying, um, don't elevate yourself, serve one another. And, and I think it's in Proverbs, I'm not sure on this, but it says, let others speak well of you. Um, and so at the Last Supper, the disciples are, are, are talking back and forth. Well, I think Jesus is going to put me on his right or on his left. And uh, Jesus, knowing, of course, what they're thinking, um, tells them and is describing to them on, in his last hours with them uh, how to be a servant. And Paul, of course, is, is restating that fact um, in his letters as well. So thank you for your attention. Do you have any questions or comments that you would like to share?